As many of you know, I'm a pretty avid Texas Tech basketball fan, and I love the big games. I'm a season ticket holder, so I love when we play teams like Baylor and Kansas and what's that other team's name? <laughs> oh, yeah, Texas. Almost forgot about them. But the team that worries, the, the games that worry me the most are when we play teams like Appalachian State or teams like that. And, and, and the reason is because we often kind of lower the, the level of our game to the level of our competition, and it turns out to be some of the worst games of the year. But, but sports is not the only place that can happen. It can happen in our social lives as well. Sometimes we get around, around the wrong crowd and we lower the standard of our moral convictions. We, we get loose with our language. We laugh at degrading jokes. It's true in what 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 33 tells us is don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. If we're not careful, we can become a product of our environment, adopting the, the beliefs and behaviors of the company that we keep. And, and I believe this is part of the writer's concern in our passage this morning. He's talking to, to Jewish Christians who were, uh, in, in many ways, kind of abandoning their faith, leaving uh, the faith in order to go back to the protection of the Jewish communities, uh, avoiding the persecution of what it meant to be a Christian during that time. Uh, in order to do so, though, they had to lay aside some of those convictions of their faith and, and blend in with the environment around them. And so the writer gives what amounts to warning number three in his letter. It's a warning not to become the products of our environment, basing our convictions on, on what other people believe instead of making our faith our own. And let me just kind of take a rabbit trail right now, and we're going to celebrate seniors here in a little bit, so I want you to listen to me if you're a graduating senior. Because this will be really important when you enter into those campuses filled with people, some of which will hold to your beliefs, many of which who will not. And you will become a product of the environment. Uh, uh, you will adopt the beliefs and behaviors of the company you keep. So choose your friends wisely. We need to be careful. And that's the warning that we see in our passage this morning. And, and actually, to put it more simply and more bluntly, what the writer is essentially telling his Jewish audience is this. He's saying it's time to grow up. It's time to grow up and, and mature in your faith. And I'll give you a little warning. He, he uses a warning this morning. I'm going to give you my own warning. And the warning is this. This is going to be convicting for all of us. And the reason I know that is because it was incredibly convicting to me this week as I prepared for this message. Because we are all prone to spiritual laziness. We can find ourselves in, in situations where we become apathetic. We can adopt the idea of Christian consumerism. Where my faith, my spiritual life is based on what's best for me. What's most comfortable, what's most convenient, what's least intrusive to my everyday life. Uh, agreeing with biblical principles, 
You know, when we do show up, we hear what the word is being taught, and we say, yeah, that's true, I, I believe that, but, but not necessarily putting those principles into practice. Or looking for some spiritual experience instead of sharing in the sufferings of Christ. You see, our church is not immune to this. We love to study our Bibles, and that is a wonderfully beautiful thing. So don't hear me wrong. But here's the warning. If we don't let what goes into our head make it into our heart, it is not doing any good. If we are not living what we are learning, we are being deceived. That's, that's the warning of our passage this morning. And it applies so directly to us today. And so with pastoral concern, the writer calls his audience to something better. With that warning is invitation. It's an invitation to flourish in the life-giving relationship that God created us for. And knowing that when we get distracted by other things, we are missing out on the great goodness that he intends as we walk in faith with him. So before we look at our word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we want to come to your word humbly this morning because sometimes, at least for me, when I feel conviction, I get defensive. I want to push back. And in doing so, many times I miss out on truths that you really intend to penetrate my heart. So I'm going to just pray for myself and assume that there will be others in the room here this morning where this applies. But Lord, would you please open my heart and my mind. Allow your spirit to speak deeply into my life. So that I'm not just agreeing with the, the principles of this text, but I am convinced to the point of conviction, to the point of practicing them in my daily lives. Lord, help us all corporately as a body of Christ to, to walk out of here this morning with that same conviction. Lord, hear our prayer and pray this in your name. Amen. Right, turn to Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to begin in verse 11 where we left off last. I'd love for you to follow along with me. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, it says, Concerning him we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. He goes on in chapter 6 and says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity, laying aside again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washing and laying on of hands and the resurrection of dead and eternal judgment. And this we do if God permits. As he says there in the beginning, the author's been talking about how Jesus has been appointed by God to be the great high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And, and although Melchizedek is, as we talked about last week, a bit of a mysterious figure mentioned only two times in the Old Testament, he's mentioned eight times in the book of Hebrews alone. 
So clearly, from the author's perspective, this is a really important topic for his audience, including us, to understand. He even says in verse 11, I have so much more to say. But he goes on and says, but it's hard to explain. And not because the subject is difficult. It's hard to explain because his audience has become dull of hearing. And you've probably had an experience like this with someone before, as you, as you share something really important on your heart, but, but you can tell by looking at their eyes that they have drifted off to some other planet, and they're really not hearing anything you're saying. Their, their eyes might get droopy, and I just want you to know, I see every one of you on Sunday when you're <laughs> every one of you. Or, or they might start looking at their phone or, or, or looking at their watch, but all of these are indications that they just simply are not engaged in the conversation. And I believe the author is having the same challenge with his audience of these Jewish Christians because they have lost interest in what it means to deepen your walk with Christ. They've become Christian consumers by just taking in information without doing anything with it. And apparently this is an ongoing problem because he says in verse 12, you have need again for someone to teach you. At this point, he says they should be teachers. We need to understand here that this is not talking about the the office of pastor or, or teacher. This is talking about discipleship. Discipleship, which is a fundamental attribute of the Christian faith. But instead of pouring their lives into others, they are depending on others to pour into them, constantly consuming. And as a result, it says they're, they're still stuck on the elementary principles of the faith. In other words, they're, kinda, they're still singing the alphabet song instead of taking those letters and actually making words useful for conversation. The author describes it by saying that they're relying on milk instead of eating solid food which really is describing someone who is perpetually immature. Perpetually immature. Paul describes someone like this in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 14. He says, as a result, we are no longer to be children. And here's what it looks like to have a perpetually immature faith. He says, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. You see, if we don't grow in our faith, we we become enamored by every new idea we encounter. We read a book and we think, oh, that sounds really good. I I like that. Or or we hear a sermon or, or someone receives a word from God and we say, well, that seemed really convincing. But, but we don't take what we've heard and let it go through a grid of God's word to find out, is it biblically true? Instead, it's based on emotion. It's based on expressive individualism. It's, it's this idea of just kind of determining what sounds good to me. Tossed here and there by every new revelation, chasing spiritual experiences instead of seeking to know the person and work of Jesus Christ. Instead, he says in verse 13, of being accustomed to the word of righteousness. And that's talking about a a truth that has the power to to transform our lives. 
the writer is calling his audience to eat meat, to eat solid food, to, to grow deep. As we talked about at the men's retreat this morning, to, to make those roots seek deep into the soil. To, to deepen our faith, as he goes on to say, to, to discern what is evil and what is good, what is right and what is wrong. And this is something the author says that in verse 13 that requires them to train their senses. It's, it's kind of like a, a theological grid through which you receive information and determine, discern for yourself whether that lines up with biblical truth or not. And it's ongoing practice. And, and through that practice, through that day-to-day being invested in God's word and being engaged with God's people, you become, it becomes instinctive. It's kind of like a, a surgeon who's doing heart surgery. Okay? You don't want that doctor looking at a textbook or watching a YouTube video as he's doing the procedure, do you? No, you want, it, you want him to be trained. You want him to, to be skilled so he instinctively knows what to do. He can know instinctively when things are going right and perhaps more importantly, instinctively know when something's going wrong. It's the same idea here about what it means to be spiritually mature. So that way, when you do, when you read a book, as we should, when you hear a sermon, as you should, you'll be able to discern if what you're hearing lines up with what God's Word actually says, and perhaps most importantly, when it doesn't. This Recently, I was looking at an endorsement on the on the back of a Christian book, and it said this. It said, this is a scary subject in a lot of circles, but in reality, we need wealth to advance the kingdom of God. And my immediate reaction is, no, we don't. God does not need our money to advance his kingdom. I mean, just think about Jesus and his disciples. They weren't exactly wealthy, were they? This is a false truth. And we should instinctively Recognize that when we see those things. But without spiritual maturity, we get dragged into movements like this. And when I say movements, this is where a people who collectively, without discernment, hear that and think, well, well, that sounds right. That, that seems pretty convincing. And the next thing you know, you've got a massive movement under the name of Christ that's going headlong in that direction. The writer says, leave the inner inner elementary teachings of Christ and press on to maturity. Again, bluntly, it's time to grow up. And then he gives three couplets, which I think are foundational truths. And he's not saying that they need to abandon these truths. These are important. But, But he is saying that you need to build on these truths. They're foundational. Now do something with them. First he says, repentance from dead works and faith towards God, turning from salvation through the law of God, which would, which in, from that Hebrew audience, those would be the dead works, trying to find, find salvation by following the law, earning your salvation instead of relying on a Savior. That's truth. We should believe that, but we've got to build on that truth. He goes on and said, the, the instruction of washing and the laying on of hands I think this is moving past this idea of ritual cleansing to, to being commissioned, to, to living out Christian service. 
This is a call to break that cycle of, of sin, repent, rinse, repeat. Sin, repent, rinse, repeat. That, that, that cycle of sin instead of, of, of growing up into a life of faithful obedience. And let me just say here, this is a life that is marked by progress, not perfection. It's moving, it's growing, it's maturing. And then finally, the, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Again, important biblical truths, but it's time to go deeper. These are foundational truths upon which God intends us to build our faith. Yes, it's important to have a strong foundation. The Bible teaches that. Build your house on a rock, not on the sand, right? But you have got to build on it in order to live in it. You've got to build on it in order to live in it. You hear this idea in Paul's prayer in, the letter, in his letter to the Colossians. So I want you to listen for it as I read this, beginning in verse 9 of chapter 1. It says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, to ask that you may... And here's, here's what it looks like to build on faith. What he heard of was that they had faithfully put their, their faith in Jesus Christ, and they were beginning to follow him. And so he's praying that they would build on that foundation of faith, and this is what it looks like. He says, Be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. That's what it looks like. And I believe this prayer that we see in Paul is the very prayer that the writer of Hebrews has for his audience. Because if we're not living what we're learning, we are being deceived. Look at how he continues, beginning in verse 4. It says, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, have, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. It's probably no surprise that these are some of the most debated and difficult verses in Scripture. And since that's the case, it's very important for us to ensure clarity by looking at other passages of Scripture beyond this. In other words, we need to let Scripture interpret Scripture and not build an entire theological system by what we think these three verses say. Believing that God's word is God-breathed and it does not contradict itself. Because some will look at these verses and say, see, it says right here that, that you can lose your salvation, that you, you can fall away, and, and then it's impossible for you to come back. But in order to hold that view, you have to deny a whole host of passages that speak to the contrary. I mentioned recently this study that the elders did a study on uh, the security of our salvation, this, this very topic. And we, through our time of looking at the Word and different passages, believe that the overwhelming message of Scripture, praise God for this, 
is that our security is based on God's promise and not on our performance. And so let me just give you an example of some of the, the passages that you can see in Scripture. And, I, and I'll tell you up front, this is scratching the surface, okay? There's many more than this. But, but listen closely to the words and the conviction of what's being said here. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says this, And I am sure of this, okay? This is a certainty. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He will finish what he started. To the day of Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13. In, the, in him. You also after listening to the message of truth. The gospel of your salvation. Having also believed. Here it is. You were sealed in him. With the Holy Spirit of promise. Who was given as a pledge. Of our inheritance. A pledge by who? A pledge by God with a view of the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. Now, he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us in God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Do you hear the language? Sealed by God, anointed by God, promised by God, pledged by God. That's why the scripture tells us that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus and no one can snatch you out of his hand. Our God is a covenant-keeping God and he is faithful even when we are not. Our security is based on his promise, not on our performance. So, to take these three verses and to somehow twist it to suggest that we can lose our salvation is to deny the very truth of Scripture that is clearly communicated all throughout the Bible. So, if that's the case and that's not what's being said here, and I sincerely believe it is not, then what is being communicated? What is he talking about? Well, it's my conviction. As I look at these passages in the context of this letter, which is in the context of the scripture of the whole, is that he is speaking to those who are in the church who are not true believers. Because notice how the pronouns change. He shifts from us and we to those and them. Look at it. Us and we to those in them. So that, that's a signal to me. It's telling me that he's speaking to a different group of people than the Jewish Christian audience that he's been speaking to up until this point. But, and here's the key. Listen to this closely. In the context of immature Christians, which is what his concern is, isn't it? In the context of immature Christians, it's very difficult to tell the difference. In other words... Immature Christians look a whole lot like people who are pretending to be Christians. If we are not living what we are learning, it is easy to be deceived. He says they've been enlightened. That they've heard God's truth and, and, they've, and they've embraced it. They've, they've received it with joy. But Jesus speaks of this in the parable of the soils. 
Matthew chapter 13, verse 20 says, The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who, here it is, hears the word of God and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction and persecution arise because of the word, immediately, look at the language, he falls away. Isn't it interesting that uses, Jesus uses the exact same terminology here as the writer of Hebrews, or maybe we should say the writer of Hebrews uses the exact same terminology as Jesus. It says they've tasted the heavenly gift, and, and in my view, that heavenly gift is Jesus. They have been enamored with his life and ministry, intrigued with his miracles and his message, much like many were during the life of Christ, okay? Let's, let's understand that throughout his life, in all the miracles, there were people that were enamored so much so that at one point in time, they were laying down palm branches, believing that this was the promised Messiah, and they were ready to crown him with king, as king. Only just days later, the very same people were calling to crucify him as a criminal. It says they were partakers of the Holy Spirit, perhaps even demonstrating some of the, the fruit of the Spirit, like, like patience or, or, or kindness. But we all know... <laughs> We can demonstrate those attributes with the completely wrong motives, can't we? I can be kind in a very manipulative way so that I'm trying to get something from you. It says they tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Again, hearing the goodness of God's word, seeing the evidence of God's presence among his people. By all accounts, they look a whole lot like the immature Christians around them, which is why the writer of Hebrews is telling those people it's time to grow up. But, but those who haven't trusted in Christ have not had a life that's been transformed by genuine faith, which again is why he has the warning. If we're not living what we are learning, it is easy to be deceived. Perhaps, and I don't know this is the case, but I've often wondered when you read this verse in Scripture, who's he talking about? Maybe it's people like this in the book of Hebrews when Jesus says in Matthew 7, 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name, cast out demons. In your name, perform many miracles. And then Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It's like the story of Mickey Cohen, if you have any uh, idea of history. He was, a, he was a gangster in the 30s and 40s and apparently professed faith in Christ in an evangelistic service one day. But there was very little change in his lifestyle, so he was confronted at one point about how he had made this profession of faith, but his life didn't look any different. He said, look, he says, there's Christian football players, there's Christian politicians, there's Christian cowboys. Why can't there be Christian gangsters? <laughs> if we're not living what we're learning, it is easy to be deceived. And by falling away, they revealed that they never belong to begin with. John speaks of this in 1 John 2.19. He says, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out 
so that it would be shown that they are not of us. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, and when that happens, they bring open shame upon the Son of God. And in my view, I think this is what the Bible calls the unpardonable sin. That's why it talks about being impossible to bring them to repentance because they've witnessed the grace of Christ, the power of God being put on display. They've been enlightened by the work of the Holy Spirit and then have fully rejected the lordship of Jesus Christ. Thereby calling him a liar. There is no room for repentance without complete surrender. There's no room. And the Bible is very clear about that. Look how he continues, because he helps us understand with an illustration beginning in verse 7. He says, for God... For, the, for ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation, useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receive a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. The author closes with this illustration to help make his point. And, and before we do, let me... There's a little check in my spirit a little bit about something I just said. I just said there is no repentance without complete surrender, which is a true statement. But I don't want you to hear me say that when you come to know Christ, everything you've ever done wrong goes away and you no longer struggle anymore. Okay? I don't want you to hear me say that. There is a growth, and that's the point of this passage, is that we grow, we mature, and it takes time, but we're moving with progress, not living in perfection, okay? Does that make sense? He, he looks at the ground, and he, and he talks about how it drinks up rain, and boy, we can understand that in West Texas, can't we? And that rain, as an evidence of God's common grace, it falls everywhere. It falls on both the good and it falls on the evil. And when it falls on those seeds of truth, it says that it brings forth vegetation. And notice that that fruit-producing vegetation does so because it's cultivated. It says that having been tilled, so there's care, there's a attention to the ground, makes it soft so that the roots can sink deep. And it produces fruit that is profitable and good, and that, that fruit is received as a blessing from God. It's, it's not something of, look what I did, nice fruit, huh? No, this is, look what God did. And they receive it as a blessing from him. You see, this is describing a true believer who has cultivated a deep and an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, just like we read in Paul's prayer to the Colossians. But in that same field, they get this, in that same field, right alongside the vegetation, are the thorns and thistles. And it reminds me of the, the parable of the, the wheat and tares. They're, they're, they're right alongside each other. And I believe this description is very intentional because it takes us directly back to the Genesis story. Listen to this. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, when God is describing the curse of sin, and this is what he says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all days of your life. And here it is, both Thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you. Thorns and thistles are the fruit of sin. 
and they have no eternal value. That's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 17, so every good tree bears good fruit, and a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, and a bad tree, and a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. So you see what the author's doing here? Again, let's go back. It's both a warning and invitation. It's a warning about unbelief, just kind of pretending to, to, to be a Christian, to going through the, the religious game without really any meaningful life change. And, and alongside that is an invitation, an invitation to flourish in a relationship with Jesus Christ as God intended. And so what I want us to focus on as we finish up this morning is what does that look like? What does it look like to flourish in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And as I look at our passage, the one thing that jumps out to me first is discipleship. Discipleship. Which again, like I said earlier, is a foundational attribute of the Christian faith. But somehow, somehow in our current day, we've made it optional. Or we've relegated it to the role of those who are on a church staff. That's what they do. But in reality, if we're not sharing, we're not growing. The author said we ought to be teachers in order to grow in our faith. And I think one of the reasons this is true is because in order to be a good teacher, you have to be a good student first. You have to learn yourself. I'm telling you, every single Sunday, the only thing I'm doing is sharing with you what I have learned the previous week. And I am just like you, looking at passages and at first glance going, I have no idea what that says. <laughs> but I labor in it, and you labor in it, so that we can grow to understand what it means and how it applies to our daily lives. Sharing with others, discipleship is sharing with others out of the overflow of what has been poured into us. That's what discipleship is. We see it in the Great Commission. I want you to listen for it. We're familiar with this verse, but, but listen. It says, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the ends of the age. You see it? Teaching them all that I have commanded you. It starts with you. We are called to be a student of God's word. We are called to be a student of Christ's life. We are called to, to grow in the knowledge of God, to, to understand the attributes of God. Just like we did this morning as people spoke out loud the things that they, they saw, who God, those are the attributes of God. And so what does that mean? What does it mean for him to be merciful and gracious and redeemer? And how does that apply to me and my life, and us corporately, and our lives together. We are called to be a student of God's word. We are called to be a student of Christ's life. And then sit down with someone and share what you're learning. That's discipleship. It's not difficult, is it? I mean, this is really not rocket science. It's taking what has been poured into you and then letting it flow out into the lives of those around you. 
But in our individualistic society, we have convinced ourselves that my faith is between me and God. Me, my Bible, and no one else. And that is a false belief. That is ultimately what leads to an immature faith. Because God has designed us to live in community. We grow because we are networked together. And growing in our faith always leads to giving our life away. Discipleship is the evidence of spiritual maturity. It's a, a soul that is thirsty to receive God's word and just as eager to give it away. It's time to grow up. And, and here's another uh, reason that it's important. If our faith is immature, our heart is insecure. Okay, let me say that again because this is really, really important. If our faith is immature, our heart is insecure. And one of the reasons God wants us to, to flourish in our faith is to be strong in our assurance. Experiencing a deep and abiding walk with Christ being transformed by the work of his spirit, learning to replace the lies of the enemy with the truth of what God says. Not through just intellectual assent, but through a life-changing encounter with the living Christ. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. Now, have you ever read that and asked yourself, how can you have a knowledge that surpasses all knowledge, <laughs> right? How's, it, how's that possible? That's what it says, isn't it? To know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. How is that possible? That's because I believe it involves an encounter with the living Christ that is beyond explanation. It is a life-changing experience that you have no words for because it's not anything that you did something that was done to you, in you, through you. It's an experience of his love, his approval. A life of Christ that is so real to you as it would be for any other person around you, if not any, many more. A mature faith longs for this encounter. Uh, my son Graham and I were talking about this recently. He had a great illustration that kind of helps us understand this. I found it really helpful. He says it's like a room with two doors. And if you go in one, room, one door, you have to exit the other door. Okay? The first door is knowledge. The second door is experience. Now, if you go through the door of knowledge, again, kind of growing in your intellect and your understanding, you have to exit through the door of experience. Empowered by the Holy Spirit to put truths into practice and encountering the work of, of the living Christ in our, our daily lives. Taking truth and applying it through the experience and how we live that out. If you go through the door of knowledge, you have to exit through the door of experience. And likewise, when you go through the door of experience, you have to exit through the door of knowledge. Because if you hear God speak to your heart, feeling God move in your life, directing you to, to certain ideas or, or certain decisions, you must exit through the door of knowledge to make sure that what you heard in your heart 
lines up with what God says in his word. Because here's the danger. You can end up attributing a decision to God that never actually came from him. Knowing the love of Christ is more than intellect. It is an encounter. It's a truth that transforms our lives to become more like Christ. So in closing, let me quickly give you one practical piece of application. Okay, Two verses. I want you to write them both down, please. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 through 21. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. The next one we looked at earlier, Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. Colossians 1, 9 through 12. What you find in both of these cases is these are powerful prayers of Scripture. And here's what I want you to do, two things. I want you to read those prayers, and I want you to make them your own. I want you to take that prayer, and I want you to go before the living Christ and ask him to help you grow and mature in the ways in which those prayers are, are read, okay? Pray it for yourself. The second thing is this. Get with a group of people and pray it for each other. Take those prayers, just read them out loud as, as you pray that prayer for one another. And then, if you're able, take some time and consider, what exactly does that look like? What does it mean to, to grow in the knowledge of God's what does it mean to live in a manner worthy of our calling? Talk about that. And figure out what it looks like in your daily lives. Assurance of your salvation. He wants you to make disciples so that your life is an overflow of things that are being poured into you, pouring out into the lives of those around you. In the end, this is what he wants. He wants more of you. And here's why. So that you can have more of him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the powerful truth of your word, for the living Christ speaking through your, this word into our hearts by the work of your spirit stirring conviction. And Lord, help us to respond appropriately in humility, in surrender, in faithful obedience. And Lord, help us not to do that we talked about this weekend as lone rangers, but instead in community, growing together as we mature in Christ as you intended it to be. Lord, thank you for the truth in your word, and we pray this in your name. Amen.